Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. It's a great day for a podcast. Once again, here he is, John Oakley. And so it goes that I, I was reading an interesting piece in Quillette. Uh, it was actually sourced from the Aristotle Foundation whose uh, senior fellow has joined us here, uh, the Aristotle Foundation for Public Policy, that is, Dr. David Millard Haskell, an associate prof at Wilfrid Laurier University and a social scientist, writing about diversity, equity, and inclusion. One of these conundrums that we face on a daily basis, be you in academia, in the corporate world, perhaps in government, uh, because many of these workshops are mandated. But are they effective or maybe even otherwise. Let's find out. Uh, Professor Haskell has joined us here on the Oakley Show at 640 Toronto. Professor, good to have you back with us. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. I appreciate very much because you've really done an extensive uh, job researching or at least, uh, you know, aggregating a lot of research that's been done on diversity, equity, and inclusion, which has certainly gained additional currency uh, in the aftermath of the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis. On the surface, we've talked about this in the past. I know certainly on this show we've uh, elaborated. It seems like it's a rational premise. I mean, diversity, equity, inclusion. But you're saying this is problematic. So where are the problems? Well, because they don't mean what they say. Uh, when they say that they want diversity, they actually don't. What they what they want are uh, certain groups to be vilified as oppressors and other groups to be uh, uh, on the other side, where they are the oppressed, so therefore they, they receive greater privileges. And you can't run a society like that. I mean, discrimination of any kind is wrong. So that that's a big problem with it. But what I uncovered in my research report was that all these, all these gurus of DEI making claims that it, it does something positive, it's simply not true. There's just not empirical evidence for that. Yeah, you know, I was fascinated by that. When you cite empirical evidence, meaning it's incontrovertible, you can't uh, argue it's just uh, solid, rock solid. What kind of empirical data would you come up with to substantiate the claims that DEI is actually counterproductive? Well, what, what you would do is some simple stuff, first of all. Uh, and again, this is not my original research. I was simply taking what others have done, but it's been ignored. And, and so there have been these massive meta-analyses done. And a meta-analysis is a statistical study that aggregates the findings of hundreds and hundreds of other papers and then subjects it to very rigorous methodology. And what it looks for is things like effect size. So effect size, think of it like this. If you went into DEI training, does it have an effect? Now, the DEI proponents, they'll, they'll claim that if you go to DEI training, it will make you less prejudiced. It will make you want to work uh, with greater harmony among uh, diverse groups. And that's just not true. To quote the meta-analyses that are shown in my report, the effect size is near zero. 
and, and it actually moves to zero, meaning it doesn't make any difference, the, the better the study. So the larger the sample size, the less effect. Now, now that was just part of it. There are other studies that have shown DEI does have an effect, but it actually is negative. It can increase prejudice and, and it can activate it. So the fact that these studies are out there and have been ignored, that's a problem in, in and of itself. But, but I'm grateful that uh, the Aristotle Foundation has let me shed a little light. So what you're saying in a nutshell is DEI training does not change behavior significantly to the positive side. No, no, there's no evidence that changes behavior to the positive, And there is evidence that it can do uh, things that are negative, can so create uh, negative attitudes. Yeah. Towards minorities. How's that work? Well, typically the effect is that it makes people uh, more likely to feel hostility toward the majority population. So for example, uh, one of the, one of the components of DEI, especially the anti-racism side of DEI is uh, the teaching of white privilege. It's a core component. Uh, a woman, Erin Cooley at Colgate University in New York wanted to see what would happen if you teach students the concept of white privilege. And what she determined was it doesn't make them feel more sympathy to people of color, but it does make them feel more hostility toward poor whites. Similarly, uh, there was a group of researchers or two researchers at a University of Michigan who looked at what happens when you teach white privilege. And contrary to the claims of the DEI gurus, what actually happens is it does not make people feel more unity. It actually makes them less likely to speak up. It, it hampers the ability for people to communicate. And, and there are, those are just a couple of examples I'll rattle off off the top of my head. But overall, when you look at the effect, it tends to be negative. Again, with Dr. David Millard Haskell, he's an associate prof at Wilfrid Laurier University, a social scientist and a senior fellow with the Aristotle Foundation for Public Policy, who have written, well, he's written this piece, uh, citing research from varied sources about DEI workshops and uh, how they may have a negative effect rather than uh, supposedly they premise all of this on building a better society and people become enlightened and more compassionate and so on and so forth. And he says the metadata uh, does not bear that out, but it's also in DEI workshops, which are mandatory in a lot of places. As I said at the outset, uh, this notion of white privilege is taken as an article of faith, isn't it? Yeah. And it's simply not justified. Uh, the, the idea of white privilege is that people with white skin have an additional advantage. And whenever you, you test that empirically, it's just not true. I'll, I'll give you a quick example. One, one study that was really, really rigorous was done out of the UK. So what they did, they gathered together a blue ribbon panel of sociologists and uh, psychologists and economists, and they formed what was called the UK Commission on Race and Ethnic Disparities. So they, they, what they wanted to determine was, does race have a bearing on life chances? And what they determined was that, no. I mean, if you want to look at the thing that actually will influence whether someone succeeds academically or in terms of their future careers, you've got to look at things like geography, family influence, uh, culture and religion were huge. 
And a lot of, I mean, this, this is just stuff that sociologists have uncovered, but just never makes it into the media. I mean, if you want to talk about privilege, the greatest privilege you can have is two parents at home. So uh, that's, that's just one of the concepts, white privilege, that isn't based on fact. And when you look at the facts, they're ignored. The other article of faith, as it were, uh, is, well, there's a quote cribbed here in your article. If the typical anti-racism activist in Canada today is looking for widespread institutional or systemic racism, they will not find it. We're told otherwise. Yeah, well, again, I'm grateful for another senior fellow, fellow at the Aristotle Foundation, Matthew Lau. He did He's an economist, and he did an extensive review of the data here in Canada. And what he showed was that, in fact, in terms of this notion of systemic racism, and it should show up in things like income and educational attainment, just not there. Uh, in fact, in Canada, the, the, the group, the ethnic group that does the best are actually Asian Canadians. And um, this can include people from South Asia, East Asia. It's just... The fact is that your ethnicity doesn't hold you back. And, and when people say that systemic racism is prevalent, they just don't have the data to prove it. Well, are Asians not considered white adjacent now? I mean, is that all part of the con? <laughs> yes, they are. <laughs> yes, they are. I mean, uh, and, and this is the concept creep that you see within the DEI curriculum. Uh, when things are just so blatantly uh, obvious when the reality just keeps surfacing, they will try and change the terms. There were some school boards in the U.S. under the tutelage of the DEI office. They started to change the category for Asian uh, Americans and lump them in with whites, and it was because they were performing at a level that was uh, too high. And and so this is just the madness that goes on within the what we'll call the DEI community. It just has no mooring to reality well and yet it's promoted uh so forthrightly i mean when i talked uh, about uh off the top uh government mandates it academia does uh you've also got corporations that make these workshops uh more or less mandatory as well so if there's uh no validity to it what's the point or purpose what's the end game what is this all about at its core well, it depends on which group is promoting it, really. I mean, if you're looking at government, it's incredibly beneficial to promote DEI strategies if you want to uh, appeal to special interest groups. If, if rather than try to do the best policy, you think that you can divide and conquer, DEI policies will do that for you. It gives you an excuse to discriminate. So our government does that. In terms of business, well, they don't want you to pay attention to some of the financial misdealings that they've taken under or, or that they've taken under their belt, the things that they do. I, I'm, I'm sure that all of us get angry at uh, bank fees, for example, or the amount that we pay for our cell phones. Well, if those kind of businesses want to divert our attention, they simply have to say, look how great we are. Look how much we, we promote DEI. It's a diversion technique. And then, of course, you've got those people who, who know it's not empirically sound. But they still promote it because they're making money from it, or they know that it can be used as a tool to destroy the current society and replace it with something of their own choosing. Well, that sounds like cultural Marxism. 
It is. I mean, DEI really is just it's Marxism revisioned or or sorry, re reimagined with uh, identity politics instead of capitalist versus proletariat. Mm. And so uh, when these companies or, you know, governments or what what you're saying is they want to show themselves to be virtuous by embracing DEI. And even uh, uh, individuals within said operations, those uh, institutions, are, you're saying in certain instances, they're not even sincere. They're just going along to get along. Very often. Yeah. It, it's funny. I remember, and again, there were many things that I couldn't put into my report, but there was a 2015 survey of Harvard Business School alumni. And having gone through their elite education, they were convinced that a more diverse workforce would improve the organization's financial performance. But I can tell you that that is simply not supported. There have been several meta-analyses that have looked at, does does a diverse workforce improve the the financial bottom line? And there's just no evidence of that. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have diversity in our workforces or schools. Absolutely, but let's let it happen naturally because when when you're forcing it and then making claims that just are not empirically supported, you're actually going to face a backlash. But wouldn't the status quo just be reinforced that way? It was, uh, you know, just perpetuate the same kind of there'd be a stasis within. And so uh, minorities and uh, disabled people and so on and so forth wouldn't be proportionately represented. Not at all. Not at all. And what I would say is this. We have seen improvements in every kind of racial and gender uh, barrier where, where it's been reduced. So if we go back from to the 1960s and we look all the way into the mid-2000s, people really became very accepting of different races, uh, of, of women in work, uh, in terms of gender ideology. It was all moving in the right direction. And what were we doing? We were simply saying, treat people equally. And so we saw change without DEI, without this kind of cultural Marxism uh, that, that's in fo- now enforced. When we were simply saying, judge people on the content of their character, we made terrific gains. And it's the simplicity of that message that we need to get back to. Let me say finally, uh, because I'm sure it's somewhere here in the article, that the DEI market, you know, these workshops and the people who are activists in this regard, there's big money behind all of this. I mean, it's, <laughs> I mean, it's a rather lucrative uh, area to be mining, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's a, a multi-billion dollar industry. But just to give your listeners a, an idea of how lucrative it can be, in the Toronto District uh, Public District School Board, they hired um, a DEI consultant to deliver four days of workshops to the tune of $60,000. And it was over Zoom. And that was a, a sole sourced contract. No, they didn't even put it out for bid. So if you can get that kind of work, uh, you're really going to be reluctant to to admit that it's it's a house of cards. Well, is a house of cards going to tumble anytime soon? What do you foresee in terms of DEI as it's made its way into the firmament? There's a really sharp guy. His name is uh, Russell Neely. He's out of Princeton, and he talks about the reciprocity norm. And the reciprocity norm is that I'm not going to make my group advance 
as long as you agree, you won't make your group advance. And we're just going to let merit and competency take over. And he says, when you do that, your society will flourish. The best people get the jobs. Everything really does move forward in a, in a fashion that makes, makes flourishing possible. So if you don't embrace that, then the opposite will happen. And, and so ultimately, you can ignore reality, but it's still going to come back to bite you. So one way or another, uh, reality is going to uh, triumph here. That's an optimistic note. We'll end on that. I appreciate the insights. Uh, very, very informative. Again, uh, people can find this on the Aristotle Foundation for Public Policy's website. Dr. David Millard Haskell, Associate Prof at Wilfrid Laurier University and a social scientist. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. Listen to The John Oakley Show live each weekday afternoon from 3 until 6. If you live in the Toronto area, just turn that AM dial to 640 and listen anywhere on Earth 24 hours a day by going to 640toronto.com. Follow on Twitter at AM640Oakley. You've been listening to A Curious Cast. New podcasts and shows are debuting all the time. So check back often to see what's new in the Curious Cast Library.